You're listening to episode 154 of the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we talk about taking things off the cushion and into the world. Welcome to the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we explore how to use the science of psychology, Eastern spiritual practices like mindfulness and compassion, and the game-changing work of self-coaching so you can free your mind and free your life. I'm your host, Anna Verzoni. Hey, hey, my friends. How are you doing? I am recording this in Kentucky. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh, the weather's amazing. I won't go into why I'm here, but it's awesome. And I'll be heading back to Alaska on Friday for my kiddo's birthday. So this episode, like I said in the intro, is on how to step off the cushion and into the world interweaving our spirituality with activism. And I wanted to touch on this today because I think sometimes we can unintentionally spiritually bypass activism, thinking that believing we're all one and having high vibes only is enough. Or the flip side, where we get burned out because we're too overwhelmed trying to make a difference with very complex issues. But it's so important that these don't turn us away from activism because caring and taking action is part of our spiritual practice, right? So of course, there's this uh, background that you've all been learning listening to the podcast about managing our minds, especially when we feel overwhelmed. We have episodes on the difference between compassion and empathy to help with caregiver burnout and compassion fatigue and all of that. But um, this, I want to really just focus on blending our spiritual practice with activism. And this episode was really influenced by a lecture we received from Tara Brock in my mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. It was a training I did a few years ago with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. And she told us a story about a man talking to the Persian poet Hafez about having this vision of God and the experience of merging with light and love. And he asks Hafez, was it real? And sometimes I'll get this after people have a psychedelic journey too, right? They'll wonder, was it real or is this real? Because that felt more real and whatnot. So Hafez said to him, do you have any goats? <laughs> and the man nods, yes. And he asks, do you have a wife? And he nods again, children, siblings, parents, friends. And he's like, the realness of your experience shows itself through the kindness you express with each being in your life with the understanding, right? That being true realization expresses itself through actively caring for our world. And what Hafez is also alluding to, it's, it's because our world is what we are. It's living through all of us. So we'll be exploring compassion in action today, taking our practice from our internal work out into the world, coming down from the mountain, if we're going to use a traditional Zen analogy, right? Oh, so there's a story about, it's a crow. So a crow is sitting on a tree doing nothing all day. And a little rabbit comes by and sees the crow and asks, can I also sit like you and do nothing all day? And the crow's like, sure, why not? So the rabbit sat on the ground below the crow and just rested in awareness and non-doing. And all of a sudden the fox appeared, jumped on the rabbit and freaking ate it. That's the story, y'all. Damn. So the teaching is to be sitting all day and doing nothing. Well, you must be sitting very, very high. Am I right? So this story actually comes from a management training, but it's trying to convey that to be idle, 
to do this like just resting in awareness and not doing is really to not be of this world. It's not of this reality because when we're truly present, we in touch with our hearts can't help but take action. Compassion, the desire to alleviate suffering, to do something about it arises. And many social activists are feeling the need to root their activism in spirituality in more compassion and more presence, and not just from action-oriented goals, but also from a deeper spiritual root. You know, when yoga and meditation started to popularize in the West, it was done in a way that somewhat separated them from the larger social context, and activism wasn't a part of it. But now we're seeing people realizing, hey, they also want to protect the world and the beings in it especially as spiritual practice deepens. So the two are coming together, the spirituality, the activism, in all sorts of interesting ways. And, you know, when I think about my history of social activism, in high school, I was really involved with peace work and I organized boycotts against GE because they made the triggers for nuclear bombs and whatnot. And in college, I started volunteering for feminist causes, environmental causes, community activism. And then one year, I started doing a yoga class. So I'm doing yoga and community organizing, living in both worlds. And one night I was going to a protest and there's like all this angry energy, right? Fascist this, a-hole that, a lot of hostility in the air. And the next day, you know, I'd be in a meditation class chanting and being in this space of like peace and calm. And the worlds seemed really separated. And Albert Einstein said, you cannot solve a problem with the same mind that created it. And the truth of this was becoming more apparent to me, right? And what can become really clear is like, as we open to the reality of our utter interdependence with one another, right? Then we get inspired to take care of others, you know, for even if we just look at it as a selfish reason, because we realize they're part of us. And we take care of the earth's body because it's part of our collective body. Tara told a story about Jarvis Masters, who's an African-American Buddhist who's been imprisoned on death row at San Quentin, really long time. And he's written several books. And in one, he tells a story that I think really relates to this component of spiritually based activism. So one day there was a seagull out in the yard in San Quentin and it had been raining and the seagull was there paddling around in a puddle. And then one of the inmates picked up something in the yard and was about to throw it at the bird. So Jarvis, without even thinking about it, he just puts out his hand to stop the man. And this escalated the man's aggression, right? He starts yelling like, who the hell do you think you are? Why did you care so much about some freaking bird? So there was that energy there. Then everybody starts circling around. That's the way the fights would start in the prison yard. So the inmates, they're screaming at Jarvis too. Like, why'd you do that? And the words that come out of his mouth were, I did that because that bird got my wings. That bird got my wings. And that's the title of the book, actually. That bird has my wings. And what he's saying is something we all have an inherent knowing about. That there's some spirit that connects us all. That's in the bird and in our pets and in the ravens and chickens and trees and oceans and in each of us. But we're conditioned to feel separate from one another. Thich Nhat Hanh said, We should learn how to look at life as streams of being and not as separate entities. 
This is a very profound teaching of the Buddha. For instance, looking into a flower, you can see that the flower is made of many elements that we can call non-flower elements. When you touch the flower, you touch the cloud. You cannot remove the cloud from the flower because if you could remove the cloud from the flower, the flower would collapse right away. You don't have to be a poet to see a cloud floating in the flower, but you know very well that without the clouds, there would be no rain and no water for the flower to grow. So cloud is part of flower. And if you send the element cloud back to the sky, there will be no flower. He says cloud is a non-flower element and the sunshine, you can touch the sunshine here. If you send back the element sunshine, the flower will vanish and sunshine is another non-flower element and earth and the gardener. You know, you just go on and on. You will see multitude of non-flower elements in the flower. In fact, a flower is only made with non-flower elements. It does not have a separate Self. A flower cannot be by themselves alone. A flower has to interbe with everything else that it called non-flower. That is what we call interbeing. You cannot be, you can only interbe. The world interbe can reveal more of the reality than the word to be. You cannot be by yourself alone. You have to interbe with everything else. So the true nature of the flower is the nature of the interbeing, the nature of no self, right? The flower is there, beautiful, fragrant, but the flower is empty of a separate self. To be empty is not a negative note, he says. Nagarjuna of the second century said that because of emptiness, everything becomes possible. So a flower is described as empty. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, I like to say it differently. A flower is empty only of a separate self, but a flower is full of everything else. The whole cosmos can be seen, can be identified, can be touched in one flower. So to say that the flower is empty of a separate self also means the flower is full of the cosmos. It's the same thing. So you are of the same nature as the flower. You are empty of a separate self, but you are full of the cosmos. You are as wonderful as the cosmos. You are a manifestation of the cosmos. So non-self is another guide that Buddha offers us in order to, for us to successfully practice looking deeply. So what does it mean to look deeply? Looking deeply means to look in such a way that the true nature of impermanence and non-self can reveal themselves to you. Oh, he says that so well. This is realizing belonging, y'all. So how do we help wake up that consciousness that then leads to bringing healing to the world in the form of action and activism? Well, one step is we can start to investigate. How do we relate to not just nature or our loved ones, but also to the people that we've created as the bad other, the enemy other? Like what role does that have in our activism? Oftentimes it comes Like, uh, I know in my younger years, like my activism came from disliking others and making others wrong or bad. And it's really compelling to have this sense of righteousness, right? But it's not the same as wise discernment. You know, we can say, oh, what you're doing is causing suffering. It's got this aversive energy and there's a difference from wise discernment, right? So how do we relate? So many people really want to see like peace on earth, but yet they rage towards earthlings. (laughs) 
So Charles Eisenstein says, something hurts in there. Can you feel it? We're all in this together. One earth, one tribe, one people. We've entertained teachings like these long enough in our spiritual retreats, meditations, and prayers. Can we take them now into the political world and create an eye of compassion inside the political hate vortex? It's time to do it. Time to up our game. It's time to stop feeding hate. He continues, next time you post online, check your words to see if they smuggle in some form of hate, whether it's dehumanization, snarkiness, belittling, derision, some invitation to us versus them. Notice how it feels kind of good to do that, like getting a fix and notice what hurts underneath and how it doesn't feel good. Not really, right? Maybe it's time to stop. And I remember Rashani, one of my teachers on the Big Island, she said, put on these glasses of compassion. She said, they cost $5,000. So how do you see that person now through these eyeglasses of compassion? So this is, again, a reflection of how the only way to change is from a different consciousness. And how much are we perpetuating old stuff with our ideas of someone being good and another being bad? So when I read the news, I usually read the New York Times in the morning, and if it gets me all riled up and I form an idea of who's the bad one, if I take time to meditate or just be with that judgment, I can see that underneath that judgment is often fear. And if I stay and go under the fear, what's there is grief about the loss, the loss of the hurt that's happening. And underneath the grief is care. So we can get beyond the judgment of bad guy and have the possibility of looking at one we've labeled as bad and seeing past the mask to how they have to be hurting if they're behaving in that way, right? It really helps me to imagine if it's a person, like to imagine them as a child and the suffering that they must have endured to create this uh, perspective that they have of the world that leads to their actions right? That bird has my wings to be able to see that. So that's one reflection. How are we relating to the so-called enemy? Another one is to ask, well, what are my unseen biases? What are the ways we create separation in this like habitual way, assuming the other person is less than somehow? Archbishop Desmond Tutu said he was going on a flight to Nigeria and he got onto the plane to go there. And he says, this is his quote, The two pilots in the cockpit are both black. And we, I grew inches, you know, it was fantastic. We'd been told the blacks can't do this. And he's talking about his whole history and apartheid Africa. So then he says, it felt great, fantastic. Here they are, they're gonna fly the plane and we have a smooth takeoff. And then we hit the mother and father of turbulence. I mean, it was quite awful scary. Do you know I can't believe it? The first thought that came to my mind, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he says, the first thought that came to my mind, hey, there's no white men in the cockpit and those blacks, are they going to be able to make it? And of course, they obviously made it. And he says, and here I am. But the thing is, I had not known that I was damaged to the extent of thinking that somehow actually what those white people had kept drumming into us in South Africa about our being inferior about our being incapable had lodged somewhere in me. Mm. So in some way it can help us to know, you know, it doesn't help to get guilty because we don't want to be separate. It helps us to care 
because we're not whole if some part of us is identifying as being better or different and not shaming ourselves for noticing our biases, but to become aware of them. You know, for myself, the more that I wake up and recognize racism in myself and sense how much it's a part of me as well has a huge impact. In 1992, in May of 1992, a 23-year-old Black man writes, in the shoe store, they help the white man who walks in after me. In the shopping mall, they follow me. Then he describes an incident where he was stopped by six police officers who detained him with guns at the ready and treated him for 30 minutes as a dangerous suspect. So no one's reading that knowing that this young man was the future Senator Cory Booker, who'd been a senior class president at Stanford, newly selected Rhodes Scholar. Yet our law enforcement system reduced him to a stereotype. So young Booker sat trembling and praying that he wouldn't be shot by the police. So that's bias, dangerous bias. And it takes real devotion and dedication to keep investigating that, continually uncovering deeper layers. Imagine worrying about your teens wherever they go out and they'll be wounded or killed, and it goes on and on. So begin to just try to bring in this perspective. Okay, so so far there's how do we relate to the enemy and how do we relate to our unseen bias. The third one is how do we relate to the suffering itself that we encounter? You know, we reflexively often pull away and avoid suffering. So really this comes down to being willing to feel uncomfortable, right? To having a willingness to feel pain, a willingness to be touched by suffering, our own and others. So one last story, a young man that Tara was friends with was doing emergency relief work in Haiti. And at one point, after so much devastation, he was um, with an, accompanying an older man with a broken hip to the ER, to the emergency room. And for many hours, the older man was in so much pain and not getting attention. And this young man describes how helpless he felt, not being able to relieve his pain. And all he could do is hang out with him. So he's like, what can I do? So at one point, somebody hands the old man a bread roll. And this young man writes, the old man broke his bread roll in half and stretched out his hand toward mine. An acute sense of surprise and embarrassment came over me at first to refuse his offering, insisting he eat it, for surely he needed it more than I. But my feeble attempts to decline the gift were wholeheartedly dismissed. He pushed the bread into my hand, motioning me to eat, and so I did. Me looking bewildered and humbled and him looking quite pleased to have shared his meal with a near stranger. And he goes on to describe his own realization about how he had in some way created a distance, that he was the helper, and how much that distance takes away from another being's dignity. So true compassion in action means we're really in it together. You may have heard this quote by Lilla Watson, an indigenous Australian activist. She and her team put together this quote. It says, if you come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. So we include compassion practice to help us look through other people's eyes. That's the beauty of it. So, you know, we're circling back to the beginning, which is that this change arises from a consciousness that perceives our belonging, not separateness, our belonging, our interdependence, this care and this activism rooted in that. 
Alice Walker writes, during my years of being close to people, engaging, changing the world, I've seen fear turn into courage, sorrow into joy, funerals into celebrations, because whatever the consequences, people standing side by side have expressed who they really are and that ultimately they believe in the love of the world and each other enough to be that. This is the foundation of activism. One of the other things I found really important in these polarized times is to not assume that people have a particular perspective or persuasion religiously or politically or otherwise, right? And to begin in a way that we're welcoming and open and inviting everyone be present and setting a stage of respectful communication. We really need that right now, right? In these stories, you can hear the lesson of stepping out of, you know, a term called helper's prison, this idea of separateness between helpers and others, and realizing we are all in it together. And the point of organizing isn't actually to organize something. It's actually to strengthen the web of life and the connections between people. And that it takes as long as it takes, because if we're going to get depressed or discouraged because we want to see quick results, we're not going to be able to hang in there very long, right? We'll burn out. We need to remember it's a long game. And it's also important not to make it seem like, oh, we're so pure and not to judge ourselves or others too much because you're always going to have mixed motivations. In the book, The Botany of Desire, one of the main stories talks about Johnny Appleseed. And for those of you that aren't American, he's a famous folk hero. And But he actually existed. There's, you know, the more colorful versions of the story, but he traveled around the Midwest, bringing the seeds of apples, spreading them far and wide. So there'd be orchards everywhere through the Midwest. Now, one of the really interesting things they said is that to get these juicy, sweet apples that we have now, they have to be spliced genetically, like, like grafting and whatnot. So if you just give the apple and plant the seeds, we usually will get smaller, sour apples. Only through the grafting do we make these big, sweet apples that we have now. But Johnny Appleseed didn't do that. He was just giving seeds because that's all he had. And the pictures of you see him on the boat on the Ohio River with like all these apples and apple seeds. Hey, check it out. The main use for the apples was hard cider, y'all. Liquor. And the reason he was popular wasn't just because he was spreading apple trees, there, but there were like farmers that were like, yo, give me some apple, give me some of those seeds and we'll party, right? <laughs> now, is he a bad guy? No. That's just the way it is. That's all he had. So it's important that we move away from judging. We want to take the seeds we have, the best that we have, and put them out there in a way that we're able to. You know, and often it means if you stop and reflect for yourself or you invite others to make a reflection without judgment, then we take the most difficult things in our life, we take our suffering, we use it somehow in the service of the world. Our suffering often seasons us for service. Ellie Weasel's a Nobel Prize winner that said, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you're degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. You know, like in programs where vets work with kids in gangs and the gang kids look up to the vets, right? They're like, they know what we're dealing with. It's the perfect use of the suffering that they've been through. Or I have 
a client that adopted a special needs child and realized, you know what, this child's going to be lonely, adopted another one. You know how many kids that woman ended up with? Nine, nine special needs kids, right? It's like she took the suffering in life and said, all right, this is the place that I can really make a difference. And sometimes that becomes our gift. The tears, the things we've gone through that allow us to actually be helpful to someone else. And it doesn't have to be a lot of people either. Now, I remember my friend used to say, all it takes is one person to make a difference. And it's true. And we can be that person for some one. In Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So in our practice, we invite ourselves to quiet our minds and open our hearts, tend to our hearts in some way. And then periodically we reflect, right? As we go out into the garden of the world, what is touching my heart? What love do I want to express? What gift, even if the gift is suffering that you've gone through and experienced yourself or witnessed, what gift might you bring to the world? And the beautiful thing is as we do this, it can help us overcome depression, our discouragement, our hopelessness, our sense of powerlessness, helplessness. So, you know, how does your heart feel about the suffering that's going on in the environment with humanity in the world today? And then if you were given the power, which by the way, has been given to you, what would you do? And that turns, instead of being some heavy burden, instead of being depressed, it helps us to be able to do one thing, to be that person who can offer something somewhere, right? It begins to open this possibility. So what is it that wants to open for you? What's that first step? What's that gift that we might have to offer? This is activism integrated with our spiritual practice. When you realize we are connected to everything, when we feel inspired to relieve suffering, when we realize our liberation is inextricably connected to that of others. What is the first step to share our gift? It just takes one person. If you like what you heard, please spread the love and share it. And if you know you need some help with this and want to learn more about how to free your mind and free your life, go to rebelbuddhist.com and grab my free Rebel Buddhist Toolkit, where you'll receive a video training on cultivating resilience, access to the private Rebel Buddhist group where I do weekly live sessions on topics just like this, and a copy of the gorgeous Rebel Buddhist Manifesto, and more for free. That's rebelbuddhist.com.